0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm your host, Jennifer Jewell. What does the word garden mean to you? How about the phrase natural history? What do these mean to me? What about the words gardening and gardener? The connotations and denotations of these words in practical and more metaphysical terms mean something a little different to most people who consider them. For me, gardens are sound, scent, texture, and taste. They are lively bird baths, aromatic salvia, the dappled shade of a sheltering blue oak on a hot, dry day, and the crisp taste of the vegetable garden's harvest. Likewise, They are my mother's peonies and strawberries, my grandmother's lilies of the valley, my grandfather's nasturtiums, my great-uncle's honeybee hives, and my daughter's gathering eggs. I have said this before, but it bears repeating. Gardens are some perfect combination of history, culture, and nature, of meditation, celebration, and prayer. Gardens are produce, and they are poetry. They are refuge from the world, and yet in my life— right after my children, gardens are also my deepest, best connection to the world. Gardens and their source in and contributions to our evolving natural history hold the potential to improve the world. The impulse to cultivate the land for beauty and utility transcend time. The ancient Egyptians cultivated their place. The Native Americans cultivated theirs. We cultivate ours. In this impulse and in the gardens we make in the places we live, I am a firm believer we can find redemption and solutions we can find nowhere else. Happily, the word garden is not just one thing. There is no one way or right way to get to what they are and how they're best done or manifested for you. Gardens are both more and less obvious versions of ourselves— our fingerprints, our signatures, our reflections, our legacies, as individuals and as cultures. In this North State Public Radio's new series, Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden, we'll talk with and hear from a wide variety of individuals, organizations, and representatives of plants and places near and far will not only delve into the who, what, where, and how, but also into the why, because it is the intention and universal impulse of the why that often drives the quality and the results of the who, what, where, and how. So what is a garden? What do gardens speak to? What do they speak of? As the Australian-born, Australian, and British-trained, now esteemed California garden designer Bernard Trainer so simply but eloquently states from his perspective, a successful garden is a feeling, not a formula. Based in California since 1995 and in Monterey since 2004, Bernard Trainer and Associates design and build gardens which speak dramatically and powerfully of place and the natural history of place, that place being coastal California. Look at almost any photo of a Bernard Trainer garden or landscape and you'll nod and say appreciatively, ah yes, a California garden. Today we talk with Bernard Trainer, who shares with us some insights and anecdotes on his own personal, lifelong love affair with plants, gardens, and natural history. Welcome, Bernard. I have heard you speak, I have seen your gardens. I have thoroughly enjoyed going through Land Prints, the monograph on your work that came out a few years ago. But what I really want to talk with you about today is less about your, especially your current work, and more about what got you here. And with that, I want to start with what does the word garden mean to you when, when you hear that word? What comes to mind for you personally?
1: Thanks for the introduction. Um, Yeah, that's interesting because, like you say, you want to talk more sort of where it started. And I think for me, it really was sort of humble beginnings, hands in the soil, um, really, you know, strenuous, difficult work you know, what I would call gardening. Mm-hmm. And and I think of it as cultivated space, like um, just really tending to plants, you know, embracing the dynamics of a garden, embracing change, embracing, you know, living plants, and embracing that plants die. Mm-hmm. So I think in a lot of ways, I think of it as sort of a dynamic art form but also um, a craft where I really feel like you have to pay your dues before you know anything (laughs) about gardening or plants. So Mm -hmm. it's just a lifelong experience of sort of in one way letting go to this really um, eye-opening, difficult, um, lovely thing that is gardening but at the same time, um, you know, also just learning about how we can make sort of beautiful spaces by arranging plants in certain ways. So I guess what I'm saying is I think of it as a, one of the few things in life these days that you really have to put a lot of hours in and, and to really know anything about it. And then once you do, you know, the rewards are incredible, like almost nothing else, I think, in my life. I love gardening.
0: As a child, what, what were some of your formative gardening, plant, natural world experiences?
1: As a young child, like I would say up until the time I was, um, I'm going to say nine or ten, I had an English grandmother on my mother's side, my mother's mother, And she would have, you know, the perfect lawn, perfectly edged. She would have the perfect roses, the perfect camellias, and she would spend countless hours, in a sense, showing off to the neighborhood like that was her front garden. And in the back where nobody could see it, it was a chicken coop, it was composting. And so back where she could enjoy it was all the things she didn't want anyone to see. <laughs> <laughs> and in the front garden, it was like a billboard of, you know, I'm English and look in, you know, in Australia in um, you know, pretty inhospitable gardening climate for those type of plants. So up until nine or 10, that was my knowledge base of that's what gardening was. And then when I, after 10, um, I, was, I think I was 11, and I moved to a place called the Mornington Peninsula on the southern coast of Australia. And I was surfing and hiking through the dunes. I was in this very beautiful coastal environment. And I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about gardening at the time. I was just thinking about sort of how I would get from A to B. But I think I was simultaneously absorbing all this information of what Australia is, um, at least that part of Australia is, and, you know, the regional identity. And so I had these two conflicting things, say, from, you know, zero to nine or ten, and then from ten to uh, maybe 18, of um, uh, two dramatically different, um, like one a garden, one a landscape Mm -hmm. experiences, and those two have sort of, I think, melded together to make me what I am today. As far as you know, how I see gardens and landscape.
0: The description of your grandmother's garden set against the very different landscape of Australia really, I think, um, pinpoints one of the great dilemmas of or joys and challenges of being a, a thoughtful gardener. And being in a place is that confluence between the person and their personality and their history and the, the productivity and then the landscape in which we sit. And so that definitely is so um, evoked by some of the gardens you design now. And you, you mentioned a sort of difference between garden and landscape. Can you can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I I've been thinking about this and I think it's easier for me to describe what I think of as a garden as just in essence sort of a cultivated place. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's different levels of gardens because it depends, you know, who the person is cultivating or tending the place. Yeah. So and then the rewards come with that. And then when I think of landscape I think of something, at least when I think of design landscape, um, I do think of something that is less cultivated. I still think it is touched, but it's touched less by humans, at least in the, what, I, it's what I see in the landscapes that I design.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then it sort of stops there for me. I'm not sure, because I think I'm reading a book at the moment, actually, I'm trying to think what the name of it is. I think it's called What Is Landscape? And I got it um, over the holidays, and uh, it talks about the difficulty of describing landscape and how you know the terms used are not very accurate. And so um, they, it goes into great detail about description of even landscape components within a landscape and how they're misused these days. So it's um, kind of an interesting read because I think um, when I describe landscape, I'm mostly talking about My own design landscape, which is obviously a small meaning of the word. But um, I think, yeah, the main thing I think of is less cultivated. And for some reason, I think of larger scale.
0: What does your home garden look like?
1: That's a good question. Um, One thing I should mention is I, when I started out, like I started an apprenticeship of horticulture when I was 18 years old. It was a five-year apprenticeship. And so I did that until I was about 23 or 24, I think. And then I won a scholarship from that apprenticeship and traveled to England and then um, trained in England for two years and did a Diploma of Landscape Design at Chelsea Physic Garden um, and also worked with Beth Chadow in England and then went back to Australia and started a small garden design practice and worked for a couple of years there. Then went back to England and worked for a couple of years. And this all sort of happened from about 18 till I was about 30. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, there was this whole period um, that was where I really was, you know, hands in the earth, designing simultaneously, but very hands-on. And then I would say from 30 or so onwards, was um i still i still um did some of that but it became more studio focused and like a lot more design work and less time in the field Mm -hmm. than the early days Mm -hmm. and so interestingly enough those early days i loved gardening i just i almost couldn't imagine not being the person who put the plants in the ground i i almost was all right, if I don't do it, nobody's gonna do it right. That was almost my attitude. And then I had to go through a transition of because of how busy I got with designing gardens, really trusting, you know, landscape contractors and gardeners and communicating with them about the vision and having other people do the physical work. And more recently, say the last five years or so. I realized I was really missing, mm-hmm. you know, being in the garden, and I just felt like, you know, a part of me was removed. And so in the beginning, it was very much like it was a love affair, and I've fallen back in love the last yeah. five years, but there was a middle period where I really didn't want to garden myself. I was just doing it for everybody else, really. Um, so I've gone through various phases, um, And what what my garden looks like now, in answer to your question, is I think it's a laboratory. (laughs) I started out with the idea of doing something minimal, but of course, it is filled with hundreds, thousands of plants. (laughs) 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 And so, and I've realised that's okay. Like I feel like I part of the reason I do, I always go in to design gardens with an attitude of perhaps do the least amount of plants for whatever's necessary to create an atmosphere or an effect or, you know, a, a place. And certain people I work for, design for, I have to, I have to listen very closely because some of them just are not interested in gardening. And so I try to be very aware of that and think, well, how can I create something beautiful but, but, but not overwhelming for them? Mm-hmm. And I realized that's not what I want for myself. I want something that is um, complex. I want it to change. I love propagating, I love moving plants, I love pruning. So in a way, I'm doing the opposite for myself than what I would do for most of my clients. I'm actually creating work for myself because that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm at with my gardening.
0: <laughs> that is, though, a wonderful testament to the range of um, what gardens are for for any different person. And they are all different. There's that wonderful quote by Alfred Austin Um Show me your garden and I shall tell you what you are. And it's it's different for everybody, and that's that's part of its great pleasure. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and today we're talking with Bernard Trainer, with whom we'll be right back after the break. This is Cultivating Place. Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and today we're speaking with Australian-born, California landscape designer, Bernard Trainer. The power of place, its natural and cultural history, is a strong theme through the course of Trainer's personal and professional life. His years of formal training in England only strengthened these ideas. One of the apprenticeships he mentions in our interview was with British plantswoman and garden designer Beth Chadow. She is well known as one of the earliest modern proponents of climate and regionally appropriate plantings, as advocated for in many of her books about her own Essex garden, including The Dry Garden, which was published in 1978, and The Gravel Garden, published in 2000. Trainer's skill at likewise intertwining the cultural history of a site into his gardens might easily have been honed by his training at the Chelsea Physic Garden, an educational and medicinal garden established in 1673 in the heart of London. It ranks among the oldest botanic gardens in the world today. Trainer's California Gardens are rooted in his deep appreciation for the landscape itself and in the listening, observing, and attention to detail he talks about here. From the very first experience with a potential new site, he and his studio colleagues note the surrounding natural and built environments, the look and feel and scale as they approach. He'll walk a site with native plant experts to familiarize himself if necessary and to formulate plant choices, even collecting seed from the immediate area in order to best restore wildflower and grass meadows that might be part of his ultimate vision. Known for his meticulously placed and crafted stacked stone walls, Traynor always favors locally sourced stone. Even when his clients are not gardeners per se, Trainer strives for his landscapes and gardens to foster a deep connection to their place, for his designs to look inevitable, and as though, especially at their interface with the native landscape, they will appear to sit lightly and to have grown out of the native landscape. Trainer states, when people and place are in harmony, that's when a garden is beautiful. Most gardeners are, in fact, listening and observing and striving for harmony by the very nature of gardening. But sometimes we're unaware of this, perhaps. To be aware of it allows for greater intention. Perhaps this is the best takeaway lesson of all from Trainer's work and philosophy. We conclude our interview with Bernard Trainer with a question on meaning. I would like to close with a question that kind of summarizes what you have already described for us um, in terms of this great scope of the really intense gardening and um, plant-driven life of sort of a Beth Chatto or the Chelsea Physic Garden and maybe your early apprenticeship um, ranging up to landscapes that fit into the natural environment and are less intensively cultivated but still very human-built. For you, at its best or at its deepest, what are you doing when you create a garden or when you garden yourself? What do you think is the deepest um, meaning of that impulse for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, again— It's changed in me with different phases in my career. And luckily and accidentally, I've had a lot of different um, experiences, like a diverse range of experiences in Australia, in England, and in California. And so for some reason, deep within me, um, unbeknownst to me, I don't know where it came from, that I think I've always had this love affair with regional design Mm -hmm. and art. So, for instance, when I, you know, if I'm traveling in Italy or I'm in Spain or in another part of the United States, what most interests me in gardens, architecture, art, um, is regional identity. And so when I see a piece of architecture that could only be in that place with that stone, with that roof shape or that solar orientation or thickness of wall um, colour, texture and the same, the same is true of art when I see a, a painter painting something that could only really be in that place um, that's what I'm interested in and that's what excites me mm-hmm. so when I came to California as you know I'm I'm bringing this Australian experience and also this um, experience from England and applying it to California, but I definitely don't want to do Australian gardens or English gardens. I sort of came here with the attitude of, okay, I want to do the best California gardens I can do, You know, no matter which region I'm working in. So I think that's what I take into a project every time is this... Um, responsibility and it's not a heavy burden it's just that i love california and so i feel this responsibility to connect with the site um work collaboratively with an architect to make sure that the landscape and architecture can be as close as possible in identity i listen really closely to the clients um and think you know okay how do i connect you know this client with this architect to this place. So really, it's those three things that are always sort of running through my head. And um, as I said, that I think it was deep within me. Maybe even when I was doing my gardening apprenticeship, because whatever I did, I would, I, I really question things. And so there's a questioning phase in a project where I'm really questioning myself as far as am I really listening to the architect? Am I really hearing what the client's saying? Am I really aware of the attributes and challenges of this site? So for me, really what I take to every project, and it's consistent, is um, this responsibility to listen to all those pieces and then hopefully the result. Not always, but, you know, like we, we definitely have our our landscapes and gardens that are more successful than others. You know, it is, it is something I, um, I'm not afraid to make mistakes in because some of my best gardens is when I took the most risk. So I have made mistakes, but I always try to gather as much information and listen as closely as possible. And then I think the resulting look is just a response to that.
0: I respond so strongly to what you're um what you're describing and this act of listening and connecting between people and the places they live. And um there is a quote in I think it's in Land Prince, but it it might be um elsewhere in some of the reading I did on you. Um that said, in a world that keeps moving farther away from simple things like gardens, we try to change this trend. And this connective tissue is a is a phrase that often comes up from um, other things you have spoken about. And I think that's that's a, a wonderful way to to end our our conversation and a wonderful image to consider what gardens do at their. At their best is connect us to um, our our places and the world. Thank you very much, Bernard Trainer. I so appreciate you talking to us from from your studio. I gather in um, Monterey. Nice
1: talking to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we continue our conversation on cultivating place and what gardens mean in the natural history of our time with gardener, author, and designer Julie Moore Miservi, based in Saxton's River, Vermont.
1: When you come from a rambunctious large family, you need to get away a little bit from the hubbub every once in a while. So nature became the place I got away to.
0: Until then, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Cultivating Place is produced by Matt Schultz and is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. Podcasts and a photo gallery for today's program can be found at MyNSPR.org.